Okay, now I'm sure some of you are familiar with um, this story. It's the story of Charles Blondin. And Charles Blondin was very famous about the mid-1800s. Uh, um, he was an acrobat and he was very skilled uh, in tightrope walking. That's what he was particularly uh, famous for. And in particular, the crossing of the Niagara Falls. Now, Blondin uh, is supposed to have crossed it in a sack, crossed it on stilts, which would have been interesting, and crossed it on a bicycle. But he's perhaps most famous for this one, crossing it with a wheelbarrow. And um, you'll recall that he went over uh, to the Canadian side and the huge crowds there and there and awe and ooh, gasping at what he had done. And uh, Blondin, of course, then said, well, do you think that I can take a person over the Niagara Falls in this wheelbarrow? Oh, yes, yes, certainly, of course you can. We believe you can do it. All right, who's going to volunteer to get in the wheelbarrow? Well, the heads go down. And you can imagine, could you, you know, that situation. Well, then I was thinking, what if Jesus had been pushing the wheelbarrow? And he asked you the same question. Yes, you see, the crowd believed in their mind that Blondin could do it. But they weren't prepared to trust him with their own life. And in the story here, we have uh, a man with an impressive CV. We're told in uh, verse 22 that he had great wealth. He had done well for himself. He had a few shekels in his bank account. He likely had invested in property and land. He perhaps had rented it out and uh, made a bit of money from that. He maybe had accrued deposits of gold and silver. He was successful. We're told in the Bible passage, he was a young man. I would suggest he was perhaps in his 20s. And already he had made a small fortune. Now we're looking at somebody who was either gifted, had worked hard, or alternatively, perhaps he had received an inheritance himself, but managed it very successfully. We're also told in the account that he was disciplined. Look at verse 20. Um, he says that all these uh, commandments I have kept since I was a boy. He was in all likelihood a Jew. And the commandments were important to him. And keeping them uh, was key uh, to his religious faith. He was respectful of others uh, because he kept these commandments from five to ten. He was also perhaps powerful. In Luke's account of this story, it is headed the rich young ruler, and that's maybe how you know the story better. Um, the rich young ruler, and um, it's possible that he was a Pharisee, or a religious leader, but perhaps it's more likely that he was a government official, maybe a senior civil servant, but he had certainly, 
He was a powerful figure. And then there was much to be commended about this man because there was a realization that his wealth couldn't purchase what he sought. This was a good starting point because there's many people who go through life accruing wealth, riches, and they never come to the point of realizing that they cannot buy love or joy or health or peace or contentment, none of these things. This man, although he was young in years, was astute enough to realize he had an emptiness in his life and that no amount of wealth could ever fill that. And secondly, he recognized that Jesus had the answer. He'd been listening to Jesus' teaching, obviously, and he was aware, indeed, that he was someone quite special. And then look at verse 17. His mission was urgent. He ran up to Jesus. This wasn't a casual aside. Um, he just happened to be there. This was a man in a mission. He was someone who clearly had a burning issue bothering him, and he was determined to find out the answer. He had humility. We're told in the story that he fell to his knees. Here was a man in a position of authority, a man people looked up to and respected, yet he was prepared to prostrate himself before the Lord Jesus. He was quite prepared to lose face, and he wasn't at all concerned what people thought about him. He was also determined. Verse 17 again tells us he fell on his knees before him. And so you can imagine Jesus walking towards him, and he drops down in front of Jesus, blocking his path. He was determined that Jesus was going to deal with his question. And finally, there was no ulterior motive. This man was genuine. And this sets him apart from other occasions, perhaps where the Pharisees or the religious leaders approach Jesus with a question. And as you know, quite often they, they, they raised a question to try and catch Jesus out. They asked them, should we be paying tax to Caesar? Caesar, the emperor, the Roman emperor, who was effectively holding them captive in their own country, should they pay tax? But Jesus realized that they were trying to catch him out. But there's no suggestion of this with the young man. The young man was entirely genuine. Moving on, we have a simple yet a profound question. And this really leads on from what I was saying to the young people. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And all of us as followers of, of Jesus, or if we haven't yet reached that stage, should ask this question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Because if we don't ask this question, we're never going to enter into eternal life. And eternity is set in each of our hearts. Eternity is set in each of our hearts. Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 3, verse 11 says this, He has made everything beautiful in its time. 
He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. It is evidently beyond our understanding. It's a mystery. God has placed a desire in each of our hearts to join him in eternity. But how does the great mass of humanity respond to that desire? Well, some simply pretend it doesn't exist. It's a deep mystery. It's something that we cannot fathom, as Ecclesiastes tells us. We cannot ever get our heads around it. So some people just decide it cannot be and choose to ignore it. And others may have a skewed view, a casual acceptance of heaven, a view that if we lead a fairly decent life, that all will be okay. And no matter what we believe, we will still end up in heaven. But Scripture makes it very, very clear that that is not the case. Uh, John uh, chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus very famous words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And as we were telling the boys and girls earlier, John 10, 10, Jesus said, I am the gate. Whoever enters by me will be saved. Whoever enters by me will be saved. And you see, the young man had a skewed view. Look again at verse 17 uh, with me, if you will. And the second part of that verse, he asked, what must I do? What must I do? So whilst he recognized that as things stood, he could not receive eternal life, he thought it was dependent on an action that he could take. And we're faced with something of a paradox here because he senses it as something he must do, which is active, in order to inherit, which is passive. And when we think of inheritance, it's generally money or property received as an heir when someone dies. It's entirely within the gift of that person to grant the inheritance. Our role is simply one of acceptance. And so it is with Christ's grace. Our role is one in humility to accept it. Romans chapter 8, verse 17 says, Now if we are children of God, then we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Imagine God the Father is prepared to make us co-heirs with Jesus Christ, the only perfect man. So could the young man by works inherit the gift of eternal life? When in John chapter 6, verse 28 to 29, uh, we're, we're given these words. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? 
And Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. To believe in the one he has sent. And so the key to the young man's question is presented very clearly here in Scripture. There's a sharp riposte. When, when the, the, at first sight, when Jesus' initial question to the young man might seem uh, a, a little sharp, to a man who'd been seemingly courteous to Jesus, he'd addressed him as good teacher. But Jesus saw that there was an underlying problem. And firstly, he wanted to make clear the matter of identity. Jesus was keen that the young man would grasp his true identity. We have a sense that this man realized that Jesus was something greater than a good teacher, don't we? Because he considered that Jesus had the answer to his profound question. But unless he could grasp fully that Jesus is God in human form, he could not possibly become a child of God and hence an heir to eternal life. Let's look what C.S. Lewis has to say on this issue. When commenting on when people talk about, I'm prepared to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Here's what Lewis said. He said, this is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make the choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. Let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And Jesus goes on to say, no one is good except God alone. Verse 18. Jesus proceeds to answer his own question, although leaving the man to reflect on a statement that he is indeed God in human form. Verse 19, Jesus challenges the, the man on how he has treated others. Has he kept the commandments from number five to 10? The young man responds that he has adhered to these commandments all his life. Verse 20, which of course begs the question, what was this man's relationship to God? And at this point, we have this beautiful bridge in the story. Look at verse 21 with me. Jesus looked at him and loved him. And if you don't remember anything about what is said this morning, I want you to remember those words. So wherever your situation is, whether you're going through a great time in your life, whether university is fantastic, whether your job is really satisfying, whether you're getting on in years and you're struggling or you're trying to help someone through an illness or you're just struggling with hurt in your life, 
just remember those words. Jesus looks at you and loves you. He loves you as you are. And I want you to pause briefly, and I want you to imagine that image of Jesus looking intently at you. Close your eyes if you need to, and just imagine Jesus approaching you. Because no matter what you have done in the past, and no matter at what stage you are in your walk with Jesus, he's looking at you, and he's loving you deeply. And I want you to think of the story of the woman charged with adultery by the Pharisees. It's a story of the religious police. They were keen to judge and to throw the woman to the lions, so to speak. But Jesus, we're told, sitting there quietly drawing with his finger in the sandy ground. And after he has said those famous words about you, you without sin cast the first stone. In John chapter 8, 10, 11, he says, when Jesus lifted himself up and saw none, he said unto her, woman, where are thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And she said, no man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. The Pharisees looked at the woman and pronounced judgment. Jesus looked at this woman and loved her. And looking on at verse uh, 21, then this phrase, this telling phrase, one thing you lack, one thing you lack. I wonder when the young man told Jesus that he'd kept the commandments mentioned, did he feel that he was good? He'd thought about others and how he lived his life. He may have been kind, uncharitable acts, but then Jesus pulled the rug from under him with this one short phrase, one thing you lack. And perhaps as he waited expectantly for Jesus to continue, he was congratulating himself, thinking things are pretty good, just one thing, just one thing. But then the wrecking ball strikes, doesn't it? Go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Harsh, would 25% not have been reasonable? 50%? No. You see, Jesus had to hit home. He had to deal with this young man and this, relate to him just how serious this issue was for him. It was very clear a barrier. He had to deal with this love of wealth first before he could come and follow Jesus. What about you and me? Is God speaking into our hearts one thing you lack? Is it forgiving someone for a deep hurt they've inflicted on you? Is it letting go of a bad habit that keeps recurring and causing you harm? Is it looking jealously at someone else's property, their car, their house, their partner, and coveting it? Is it a relationship that deep down 
you know is wrong for you and you're struggling to escape from it? Is it a selfish mindset, always putting your own self and your desires first? You see, the first step is brokenness. We have to be broken first. We have to have that wrecking ball come in and hit us. And then the second step is repentance, realizing that we can no longer go west when we need to be going east or north when we need to be going south. And Psalm 51 verse 17 tells us this, you will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. And then turning just to the barriers to inheritance, what is the heart of the matter or the matter with her heart? This young man had a heart problem. And the essence of it lay in the very first commandment. You say, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. You see, the man's wealth was clearly something that he loved deeply. Jesus saw this. He saw the man loved something more than he loved God. It was not the fact that he was wealthy, but rather that this was where his security lay. And secondly, his focus was the world. He was minded to build bigger barns. He was doing great. Things were going splendidly with work and money, and he was getting wealthier and wealthier, and he was becoming more powerful. And he was thinking, I'll go out and build bigger barns. He had no focus on his ultimate destination. You know, he was just concerned about his journey. It was in his mind, his ultimate destination, but sadly it wasn't in his heart. And we've been learning in the evening service in this verse again, 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4, two verses. Um, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth, a new birth, second birth, into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Christ is risen, we too can rise to be with him. The, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, fade, kept in heaven for you. You know, it's the one investment that you can make that has guaranteed interest rates that are off the scale. As I say, this isn't an off-the-shore investment. It's an off-the-scale investment. And finally, on that one, trust. This story is all about trust. It wasn't that the young man didn't believe Jesus. He did. Jesus had just handed him the key to eternal life. But to the man, the cost was too great. Look at verse 21 with me again. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And then going on verse 22, at this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. You see, he could only hear what he would lose. Not the vast and wonderful treasure that he would gain in eternity. So just to finish off, what, what can we learn? What can you and I learn? Well, firstly, that good actions 
done with good intentions in our own strength bring us no closer to eternal life in Jesus. Good actions done with good intentions in our own strength bring us no closer to eternal life in Jesus. You might remember the words of the old chorus, those of you who are maybe a wee bit older, one way God said to get to heaven. Anybody remember it? Thank you. Jesus is the only way. And then it goes, no other way, no other way, no other way to go. One way God said to get to heaven. Jesus is the only way. What I was telling the boys and girls earlier on, it's a simple it's a simple salvation, isn't it? Sometimes we overcomplicate it. But it's clear from the story that God loves this man unconditionally, irrevocably. Last week, Josh challenged us if we're merely interested in Jesus from a distance or if we're infatuated with him, that he was Lord of our life. That's quite a challenge. And is there a response to reciprocate God's love in utter dependence in him, in keeping with obedience to his holy word. When we face a problem in our own lives, do we consider it weakness or failure if we can't solve it in our own strength? Or are we prepared to be humble and to entrust it in the first instance to God? And is there focus solely on the journey, this life? And when we're younger and we're told it's short, you know, it's, we, think we've, we all think we've plenty of time, of course. But are, are we beset with accruing as much money, possessions, and goods as we can in this life? How generous will we be with the wealth that God has given us? Do we trust God enough to give until it hurts and then keep giving until it doesn't hurt anymore? Or rather, is there security in Jesus, not possessions? Is there focus on our ultimate destination and that inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade kept in heaven for you? Is fear of loss a more powerful emotion than trusting in the everlasting, unquenchable, all-powerful promises of Jesus? John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but gain eternal life. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your precious word. We thank you, Lord, that your word is truth and that you speak to us through your holy word. And we thank you, Lord, that, uh, Father, the, your encounter with people such as the rich young ruler, that you looked at him and loved him. And I thank you, Father, that you look at each one of us and love us today. And just pray, Lord, that you would help us to, to claim that inheritance, that gift of eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.